once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. You can walk on water, if you add enough cornstarch to it and make it a non-Newtonian fluid, which turns solid when force is applied. But you have to keep moving, or you sink. Teaching team member Caleb Click joins the series, The Glorious Grace and Designs of Grace, with this message entitled, Discipling Grace, which covers Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Well, good morning, Perimeter Church. As you can tell, I am not Randy Pope. He is uh, suffering for the Lord in this little country called Ireland, and he is speaking to the uh, Presbyterian Church of Ireland's General Assembly. He's talking about life-on-life discipleship, so if you'd be praying for him. But while Randy's gone, we are not leaving behind our series. We're continuing in our series on God's glorious grace. And this morning, we're coming to a text that's one of my favorites. I say that every time, because every time I start studying a text, it usually becomes my favorite. But this one is about God's grace for disciples. It's Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. This moment when Jesus does a miracle that is a little bit different from his other miracles in the Gospel of Matthew because this miracle, it's not done for the crowds. He does this specifically for the 12 men that he has just commissioned in Matthew 10 to follow him and to proclaim his kingdom in word and deed. It's one of only a few miracles in the entire gospel where Jesus pulls his disciples away and he gets them alone and then he pulls back the veil. These moments that always end with some form of the same statement, oh you of little faith, why did you doubt? It's grace for disciples and it's a grace that Jesus extends to each and every one of us this morning. Let me read to us now starting in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus We come to you this morning as a people, as Jeff prayed, as we have sung already, we are a people in need. And Lord, I confess right now my need. I need you. Lord, I am weak. I am tired. I've heard twins and babies screaming. And Lord, I need your strength where I don't have it. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you would take this text and, Lord, you would open wide our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the Jesus that is displayed in all of his glory here, so much so, Lord, that there would not be a single person in this place who does not leave this time where the disciples did, on their knees, saying, you and you alone are God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm a little bit of a a nerd, and one of the things that I like to do is play this little game called Kindle Roulette. And what I mean by that, it's not a real game. This is where I would go on Amazon's website, and I'll look at these Kindle deals, these cheap books that are selling for like 99 cents or $1.99. And if I see one that seems maybe a little bit interesting, I'll take a chance. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's weird. One of them that turned out to be a little bit good but also a little bit weird was this book by Michael Faber called The Book of Very Strange Things. It's not a Christian book, far from it, and it is as strange as the title makes it sound, but it is a book that is about a pastor and his wife who are wrestling with Jesus' call in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of the nations. And that promise that as they go, he would be with them even to the very end of the age. They love Jesus. They want to serve him. They believe that wherever he calls them, he will carry them. And so when the pastor is given an opportunity, not just to take the gospel to a foreign land and to a foreign people, but to another planet and an alien people, I told you this was weird, he leaps at the chance. He leaps at the chance even though he knows it means he's going to be away from his wife. He leaps at the chance, even though he knows that the only way he'll be able to speak with her for a period of several years will be through a form of email. He and his wife both leap at the chance because they hear the voice of God calling and they think wherever God calls, he will carry. He will empower us. He will provide for us. He will not abandon us. And when he arrives at that planet, it seems as though that's exactly what's happening. The alien people hear the word of the gospel, they receive it, the church begins to grow, and he's writing back to his wife going, God is moving, God is at work, and she's saying, praise God. But then their emails begin to change. And while he is writing to her about all the things that God is doing on his planet, more and more and more she is writing about all the awful things that are happening on hers. Until he begins to realize that while there is a revival on, on his planet, there is an apocalypse on earth because floods are wiping out not just cities but countries. The world economy has collapsed. Governments are falling apart. People are rioting in the streets and more and more and more. His wife, this woman of faith who is sure that God was with her, more and more she is beginning to express doubt. Until finally he receives one final email. It says simply this, there is no God, he is not here, do not come home. And if that blow were not sharp enough, it's at that moment that he realizes why these alien people have been coming to Christ. It's not because they understood the gospel. It's because in their world and on their planet, if you were cut, if you were bruised, unlike us, they don't heal. They die. And they are coming to Jesus because they think that maybe, just maybe, he is the cure they have always hoped and longed for. And then he watches as they still die. And the book ends 
with him on a ship going home, those words of Jesus in his head, I will be with you always to the end of the age, and he is wondering if they are true. It's the story of a man whose faith is strong, but whose God is not. Who either does not have the power, or does not have the love, or who is not there at all. Matthew 14 tells an infinitely better story. And it speaks of a much better Savior. It's not the story of a people whose faith is strong and whose God is weak. It is the story of a people whose faith is weaker than they even know and a God who is greater and more glorious than they could ever comprehend of one clothed in power and brimming with love who says to each and every one of his weak and doubting disciples, do you not know to whom you belong? And it is that power, it is that power that most immediately leaps off the page. You know, as you walk through the Gospel of Matthew, you can't escape Jesus' power. The disciples have clearly seen it. The dead have been raised. The blind have seen. The lame have walked. Just a few verses before we get to our story, Jesus has fed 5,000 people, which is a few loaves and a few fishes. You know, they may not be sure about his identity, but they're sure of this. This is someone who has more power than any prophet has ever had before. This is someone who is doing things they cannot comprehend, but they are seeing it with their eyes. And not only are they seeing his power, but they are hearing his promises. That this Jesus is sending them as sheep to the wolves. He is sending them into a world where tribulation and pain are going to come, but that he has promised them that he is going to be with them. That he is not going to abandon them. And in the end, he will say. But as soon, as soon as the boat leaves the shore, in verse 22, as soon as Jesus tells them, you go ahead and I'll follow, no sooner do they leave the shore and push off into the water than all of a sudden, everything they have seen and everything they have heard, that little bit of faith they have, it falters. And instead of faith, what they find is fear. Because something happens that they do not expect. A storm comes. A storm unlike any storm that they have ever experienced. And we should pay attention to this because remember who is in the boat. These are fishermen. These are not guys who work desk jobs and happen to get shoved into a boat in the middle of the night. These are men who, just like athletes, have trained their bodies their entire lives to respond in a split second reflexively to moments like this. They're familiar with storms. They know what to do. They know how to respond. They know how to keep moving. But when this storm comes, they don't know what to do. It says in the text that the waves are beating the ship. They are pounding the sides of it. It says that the wind is against them as though it were their enemy. And for nine hours, from evening to the fourth watch, catch that, for nine hours, they have been fighting the wind and the waves in the pitch darkness because it's night, while the rain is falling and the wind is blowing and the waves are beating and they have barely made it halfway across the sea. A distance of a little over four miles you know, if you think nine hours in the car with your kids is bad, imagine this. 
Exhausted may not even be a word that can describe what they're feeling. And you have to think, as they are sitting there just getting bashed by the wind and the waves, they've got to be going, Jesus, why did you send us here? You were the one who told us to go. You put us out on the water. Why aren't you here with us? Where are you? And if they're not afraid then, what happens next terrifies them. Because it's at that moment, it's at that moment that Jesus decides now he's going to come. And he begins to walk on the very same waters that are beating them. And he begins to walk straight towards them. And they respond the way that so many of us do when Jesus comes into our lives. Not at first with joy, but with fear. Because they look up on the water and they see a figure coming towards them that is doing effortlessly what they have not been able to do even with great effort. That is doing what no mortal man could ever do and should ever be able to do. And that figure is coming straight towards them. And it says in the text that they were afraid and they said it is a ghost and they cried out in fear. They don't see a savior coming. They don't see their friend. They see an agent of hell who has come to make a bad situation much, much worse. And they are afraid. And you know, I look at that moment, I think you know, that, that describes our experience as disciples, doesn't it? Because how many of us have responded to the call of Jesus and found us in places we did not expect? where we have heard the gospel, we have heard of Jesus and his love and his power and his care, and we have known all these things and experienced all these things, but every Sunday when we walk out those doors with the benediction still ringing in our ears, what happens? The wind and the waves begin to crash. We go home, and it's still chaos, even though we want everything to be in order. We try to go to sleep, and then our minds are running with all the stuff that's coming during the week that we can't control. And even if we do fall asleep, our kids end up waking us up, and sometimes other things wake us up. We turn on the news, and we see a world that seems just to be chaotic and evil and broken. We have white supremacists walking through the streets. We have cars ramming into crowds of people. We have political leaders who are yelling at each other and grandstanding but accomplishing very little. And there is this part of us that goes... Jesus, why did you send us here? Why are we here at this moment? Where are you? What good can this possibly serve? And just like these disciples, we are afraid. And when someone comes who threatens to overturn what little bit of control we think we have, what we feel, it's not joy, is it? It's fear. And I love this peace. Jesus, at that moment, speaks comfort to his disciples' fear. He says to us what he says to them, have you forgotten to whom you belong? Verse 27 says he spoke immediately. He doesn't wait. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't leave them sitting there dangling, terrified, and crying out. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't comfort them the way you would expect. He doesn't stop the storm. He leaves the wind. He leaves the waves. He does nothing to change their circumstances. 
Because his comfort, it's not that he's going to change their circumstances. His comfort is that he is entering into their circumstances. He doesn't want them to trust what they are experiencing in a moment. He wants them to trust the one who is standing on the water. And he says to them, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. In the Greek, it's literally ego eimi. I am. He's saying, here's why you don't need to be afraid. Here's why even while the storm is raging, you do not need to fear, you don't need to tremble, you don't need to worry, because the covenant God of Israel is standing on the water in your midst. The one who called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush and said, I am who I am. The one who delivered Israel from Egypt. The one who parted the seas, who rained bread from heaven, who brought water from the rock, who conquered nations, who again and again and again was faithful to his people. Jesus says that God is standing on the water in front of you right now and he is for you. And while the wind and the waves, they may beat you and berate you and they may threaten to destroy you, they bow to me. Do not be afraid. Your comfort is not. It is not that Jesus will change your circumstances. It is that he enters into them with you. And wherever he goes, redemption follows. Marriages can fail. Economies can collapse. Satan's kingdom can seem more powerful than ever before. But if you belong to this Jesus clothed in power, and he is with you, then there is nothing in the end that can stop him from saving. And that's not even the most amazing part of this text. Because Jesus says to his disciples, not only do you belong to one clothed in power, you belong to one who is brimming with love. Because what good is power if the one who has it doesn't care enough about you to use it? When I was a, a little boy, my dad used to show me old war movies, and one of his favorites was this old Mel Gibson movie called Gallipoli. And if you've never seen this movie, it's the story, the true story, of one of the worst military disasters in history. This battle in World War I where two armies literally lined up in trenches and just ran at each other with men dying in the hordes before finally one side gave up. And the last scene of the movie is a depiction of that battle. And there's these British soldiers lined up in their trench. And they receive a command from the men in charge that they are supposed to load their weapons, fix their bayonets. And when the whistle blows, to charge out of their trench and to take the enemy one. So they prepare. The whistle blows. The men run over the top of the trench and they begin to sprint towards the enemy side. And then the machine guns begin to roll. And the men begin to scream. And the bodies begin to fall until the machine gun stops because there are no more men running, just men screaming as they die. And then the whistle blows again. And the second wave gets out and they begin to sprint towards the other side and the machine gun begins to roll again. The men begin to scream again. The bodies fall again until finally it stops and there is another wave of men dead and dying. And then it blows again and again. And again, until finally the men in the trench realize that they are being commanded to do something that they are powerless to accomplish. That they are going to die. Doesn't matter how fast they run. Doesn't matter how well trained they are. 
they're going to come out of that trench and they are going to run into that machine gun and they are going to fall down and die and their commanders do not care. And so when the final whistle blows, these men run out of that trench and some of them don't even bring their guns. They just run into the machine gun fire because they know there's no point. You know, if I'm honest with you, you know, in my flesh, there are times that I think Jesus treats me that way. That he calls me to follow him. That he calls me to do all of these things, to make disciples, to be an ambassador of reconciliation. That he calls me to do all of these impossible things. But he does not love me enough to empower me to do it. It's a fear that I literally feel every time I get up to preach. Just this terror that I'm going to respond to the call of Jesus and stand up here in front of you and everything is going to fall apart. Because I wonder, does he love me enough to hold me up? Matthew 14 says that fear, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Peter sees it. Peter looks at Jesus on the water and he hears him say, take heart, it is I. And he hears not just comfort, he hears an invitation. He hears not just one who has power, he hears one who loves him enough to share that power. And so he says, Jesus, if it's you, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter steps his foot out of the boat And suddenly the waters that always before when he has jumped into them have swallowed him. The waters that have been beating them for nine hours, those waters hold. And he walks out onto the water and he comes to Jesus. Because the one who called him never calls unless he also intends to carry. The one who called so loves him, he delights to share with him all of his power and all that he needs. Do you realize that is the heart of Jesus for you? Do you realize that Jesus, when he calls you, he is not an indifferent commander sending you over the top to your death. He is a gracious savior who so loves you that he empowers you and sends you over the top in the power of the living God and says to you, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. I have given you my spirit. I have united you to myself. Paul, in Colossians 2, he says, for in Jesus, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In you, the church, this is us, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Let that sink in for a second. Everything that Jesus has, everything you need, all the power he is clothed in, that is a power he shares with his people when he calls them. This is not a God who is so indifferent to you that he calls you and sends you knowing you're going to die. This is one who so loves you, he shares his very power. And he doesn't just share his power. He takes hold of his sheep. I love Peter because Peter is a lot like me. Uh, He's the guy who hears the call of Jesus and responds to it. But no sooner does he respond to that call than he begins to falter and fall. 
He sees the wind and he sees the waves and he begins to doubt everything that he's experiencing and everything that he has seen. He begins to wonder if he is really safe. And the text says Peter begins to sink. And I'm so glad that he does. Because if Peter doesn't start sinking, you and I miss a window into Jesus' heart that we desperately need to see. Because what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? He takes hold. It says, Peter said, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and he took hold. And he said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You know, when I've heard that phrase said before, I always thought that what Peter was doubting was Jesus' power. You know, he saw the wind and the waves and he thought, this is stronger than Jesus. But the more I've looked at this text, the more convinced I am that, that that's not true. Because while Peter's sinking, where's Jesus? He's still standing on the water. And Peter seems to know it because what does Peter say? He says, Lord, save me. You don't ask someone to save you unless you think they have the power to do it. What Peter's doubting, it's not Jesus' power. It's his love. It's whether he cares enough to use it. Think about every moment in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus uses some form of that phrase, oh, you of little faith. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, have you not seen how your Father in heaven feeds the birds of the air and he clothes the flowers of the field? How much more? How much more will he provide for you who are of much greater value? Matthew 8 Jesus and his disciples are in a boat and there is a much worse storm even than the one that's right here. And Jesus, he's asleep. He's just sitting there in the boat taking a nap and the disciples are panicking so they shake him awake and they say, Lord, save us. We're perishing. Literally, we are drowning. We are dying. Wake up. Don't you care? And Jesus stands up and he wipes the sleep from his eyes and he says, oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he says, be still, and the sea becomes as still as glass. Matthew 16, the disciples are in the boat with Jesus, and they are whispering to one another, we forgot to bring the bread. Where are we going to get bread? And Jesus looks at them, and he says, have you not been walking with me, O you of little faith? Have you not seen what I've been doing? Have you not watched as I fed the 4,000 and the 5,000 with just a few loaves and a few fishes? Do you not realize you are in the hands of one who so loves you that whatever you need, not maybe what you want, but whatever you need, he will provide? Again and again and again and again, it is not his power they're doubting. It's whether enough he cares enough to use it. And this... This is what melts my heart, and I hope it melts yours. What does Jesus do? When Peter begins to doubt and he begins to sink, what does Jesus do? He doesn't ignore him. He doesn't rebuke him first. 
He doesn't fold his arms and look down at him and let him sink and go, you know what, it's time you learned your lesson. I've done enough for you at this point. You should have figured this out. He doesn't pick him up and throw him in the boat and say, you moron. What does Jesus do? It says immediately. Immediately. He reached out his hand and he took hold. And he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I love that. You know, we have this idea that when we doubt, that that's when Jesus moves just a little further away. That he kind of backs up. That his heart grows just a little bit colder. What this is saying is there is nothing that could be further from the truth when it comes to Jesus. What Matthew 14 is saying is that when you doubt, as one of Christ's disciples, as one of his sheep, he doesn't move further off. That's actually when he moves closer in. That's not when his heart grows colder. That is when his heart beats for you with even more affection than it did before. That is when Jesus doesn't loosen his grip. That is when his grip tightens on you even more than it was before. He takes hold. I got a little window of this uh, last summer, or excuse me, two summers ago with my oldest daughter, Mary Neal. She was to just turned one, and we took her to the beach for the first time, and we were wanting to see how she was going to respond to the ocean. And she had figured out how to run. She was kind of, you know, toddling around as fast as she could, and we set her on the beach, and she began to sprint around to all these little puddles that the tide had left behind. And she's splashing in the puddles, and she's taking the mud that's kind of sitting in there, and she's dumping it in her hair, because what else do you do at the beach? An overzealous father that I am, I thought, if she likes the puddles, she's going to love the ocean. And so I picked my daughter up, and I carried her over to where the water is just kind of lapping up on the edge of the beach, and I sat down with her in my arms so that the waves were just coming up and striking her in the belly. And I feel my little daughter go completely still, just motionless, absolutely enraptured by what she's seen and experiencing. And you can feel it in her body, that grin. You don't even need to see the grin. You know it's there. She's just joyous. And then all of a sudden, a wave comes that's just a little bit bigger than the rest. And it strikes her, not in the belly. It strikes her right in the chest. And my little girl goes from enraptured joy to terror. She forgets. She forgets that she's still in my arms. She forgets that I'm still holding her. She forgets that I would never intentionally harm her and I will protect her with everything that I have. And she turns to me with tears in her eyes and that wordless scream that babies get when they are so afraid they can't even get their throat to operate correctly, and she is clawing at my chest with everything she has, saying with her body and her arms and everything, Daddy, save me. Do you think in that moment that my response to my little girl was to shove her in the chest and push her back in the water and say, too bad, you doubted me? I took hold. I pulled her close because I love her. How much more, Jesus? 
Some of you here this morning, you feel like you're sinking. You heard that call of Jesus and you ran out of the boat and you walked on the water and then the wind and the waves, they kept bounding, pounding and beating and hurting you and wounding you until finally you begin to wonder if Jesus really cared and you began to sink. I want you to hear this this morning. Your Savior is not far off. He is nearer to you now than he has ever been. And his hands are holding you more tightly than you could possibly know. And if all you have left is that ragged cry, Lord, save me. There is one who says to you, I will never let you go. And do you know how I know that? Because the one who's standing on the water, the one who reaches down and grabs Peter's hand and says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? It's the same one who, when you were not just sinking but dead, reached out his hand and took hold. And though he was the one before whom the wind and the waves will one day all have to bow, he let the wind and the waves swallow him so that they would never swallow us again. And if he has raised you with him, what makes you think that now he would possibly let you sink? This is what Jesus wants disciples to know. This is what he wants those that he has called to go as sheep to the wolves to understand. You belong. You belong to the Son of God that the disciples fell down and worshipped in this text. You belong to the one who is clothed in power and brimming with love who even now holds you in his hand, who cares for you and will not let you go, who says to you, you can run fearlessly and answer my call. Whatever I command you to do in my word, maybe not what you want, but in my word, and I will not let you go and I will not abandon you. And even though the storm may come and the wind and the waves may beat you and you may feel like you are sinking, I am not going to let you go. I'm holding you now. I will hold you then. Because I'm the one that you belong to. And whatever I desire, I do. And there is no power in heaven or in hell that can stop him. That's the one you belong to. That's the one Jesus wants disciples to know. And that is the one who holds you even at this moment. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come this morning as a people in desperate need of a Savior. And Lord, we have found one in you who is infinitely greater than we could ever begin to comprehend. Lord, there is nobody here who is not a doubting disciple. And Lord, we are so thankful. We are so thankful that our hope, it doesn't depend on the size of our faith, it depends on the size of our Savior. And Lord, I pray this morning that you, through your Holy Spirit, you would take hold of each and every one of our hearts and you would open us up even more than we are when we came into this room and even more than we were as we sat and we listened to this to see more and more and more truly who it is we belong to and that we would respond to your call not with fear but with joy because we know you will never let us go. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.
Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.